This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. obviously argued one of the most momentous uh, cases that we'll ever see in our lifetimes um, before the Supreme Court successfully, of course. And also, uh, Professor Daniel Hemmel, who I'm sure everyone in here already knows as well, but I'll introduce him anyway. Uh, apparently, he teaches tax, ad law, and torts. Um, and he was a law clerk to Justice Kagan. Uh, Justice Kagan is a person that I had in my first year of law school here at UFC. Uh, I believe I took First Amendment law with her, and I remember it well. She was very nervous on her first day, almost apologetic, and look at her now. She's really <laughs> So anyway, uh, thanks to Ryan, as we all must do, and I'll turn it over to uh, your panelists. Thank you. So thank you for coming here. I know we build this as a fireside chat, but due to the unseasonably warm November weather, we decided actually not to light the fireplace back here. Um, but we'll still make it a chat uh, and open up for uh, questions after I've had uh, the chance to interrogate you for a little bit. Um, but first, because this is a discussion about marriage equality, would you say how you got the last name Howard Dreamer? <laughs> well, I, I think it is uh, actually apropos to the conversation. I uh, was Douglas Dreamhire uh, prior to my marriage, my wife, Mary Hallward. Um, and I actually gave a talk uh, last week at my undergraduate college about sort of some of the some of the ideas that led to my views about marriage and marriage equality that uh, ultimately came to inform our arguments before the court. And, uh, and one in particular, I remember in college, a professor saying he did not believe in marriage uh, because he had never met uh, or, or never uh, known a marriage based on true equality. Uh, and then he added, at least among heterosexual couples which was fairly shocking because at the time in the 1980s, the heterosexual couples were the only ones who got married. Um, But it left a a lasting impression on me. And as my wife and I were thinking of marrying, uh, the question stayed with me. How do you build a marriage based on true equality? Um, and, And... she had the view that we would simply all keep our own names. Um, but along with that impetus toward equality, um, I'm really a firm believer in marriage and that marriage creates a new family. And what does that mean, being a family? And sharing a family name was an important part of that to me. So how do you, how do you marry those two impulses um, and to me, the answer was to, to both hyphenate our names. At the time, there were a, lot, a number of women who were hyphenating their names, but almost no men. Um, I asked her, I said, well, what do you think our children would be named? And she said, well, they would have hyphenate names. And I said, well, if you expect to inflict that name on our children, you have to be one to suck it up yourself. And so that's uh, how Hallward Dreamire was, was born. 
So almost exactly a year ago, November 6, 2014, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals issues a decision in which it says that Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee don't need to license same-sex marriages and don't need to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states. And at the beginning of the Sixth Circuit's opinion, there's a long list of lawyers who have filed briefs in the case, but your name's not on the list. Um, then eight days later, there's a petition for a writ of certiorari asking the Supreme Court to review the Sixth Circuit's decision, and your name is listed as the counsel of record uh, for the same-sex couples from Tennessee. What happened in those eight days? How did you go from not being involved in the case to being the counsel of record for the petitioners? So, um, so the sixth was when the decision came down. Uh, Friday the seventh. I was driving home from work, stopped at a red light. <laughs> I checked my uh, BlackBerry, and there was an email uh, from from uh, a friend, actually a, a person I had known in college, and then was a classmate at law school, uh, saying, "What are you doing for the next week?" Um, said we're counsel to the Tennessee plaintiffs uh, in the Sixth Circuit case, and we've decided to seek cert and we need to file by next Friday. Uh, that is the kind of email to which one responds immediately. Uh, so I pulled over and called him, and uh, we were working on the brief that night, uh, putting together the team, including a University of Chicago alum, who was uh, one of our uh, younger associates who I knew already from prior conversations, was interested in the issue. And um, they had looked at the calendar and saw that in order to get the case heard last term, and you kind of do the math working backward from the last conferences where the court might grant cert to hear it in April to when the opposition brief needs to be filed to when the petition needs to be filed, we basically had a week to do it. Now, for those who don't know, petitions for cert usually are done over 90 days, and you can seek up to 60 days additional time which litigants often do. So to file a petition in a week was uh, quite a tall order, uh, but thankfully we were working very closely with the uh, council at National Center for Lesbian Rights um, and the other uh, Tennessee council who had been on the case. I think some of the laughter at the red light story was because it sounded so antiquated. You were using a black <laughs> You alluded to this. There, are, there were three attorneys from Ropes and Gray whose names are on the cert petition. You and two associates. One of the associates was three years out of law school. Uh, the other associate, Paul Kellogg, graduated from U Chicago in 2010. So, how did it come to pass that two very young lawyers were involved in writing one of the highest-profile cert petitions in recent Supreme Court history, or maybe not even recent Supreme Court history in Supreme Court history period? So, uh, well. One of, uh, I guess there are a few parts to that. One is sort of the, the way we operate at Ropes and Gray, which is typically to staff things relatively leanly. Um, this was an instance where, although there was a lot to do, there was so little time to do it, it actually would have been inefficient to have lots of levels of review. I mean, I was in there working with the associates on drafting and coming up with the outline. There just wasn't time for, you know, different levels of associates reviewing and revising and getting to me. Um, and uh, in terms of sort of how we staffed it, 
we at Ropes and Gray really do work on a one-firm model, so I called the assignments uh, coordinator to find out who was available. And I did mention Paul Kellogg, who you mentioned, um, by name because I knew that he was up to speed on the issues. That was because he'd got to you, Chicago, so. <laughs> it was part of it. Um, he had, and this I think is a lesson uh, for those of you who do go on to, to Firm Life. He is in our New York office. He had been visiting a friend in Washington, D.C., and it sort of you know, had a visitor office in the D.C. office. I'm the office managing partner of our D.C. office. And he, as a second-year associate, third-year associate, just wandered into my office and said, I want to introduce myself because I you know, know the work that you're doing. I would love to work with you if ever there's an opportunity. And he had a specific question that a friend of his from college was working on the Louisiana marriage equality case, and they had just lost in the district court. They were the first district court to lose marriage equality, and they were faced with a number of difficult procedural choices uh, that ultimately were looking you know, toward the Supreme Court, and he wanted to know if I would be willing to speak with his friend about that, just sort of on background and sort of strategizing. And so because he was bold enough to come in and introduce himself and let me know that he was interested in these issues. And, you know, when I had this great opportunity, he was the first person I reached out to. So you mentioned this first loss in uh, Louisiana District Court. Um, but as of November 2014, uh, advocates for marriage equality were winning uh, in most places. So they'd won in the 4th, the 7th, the 9th, and the 10th circuits. Um, so there was a lot of risk in taking this issue to the Supreme Court. Your side is already prevailing in most of the lower courts, and you risk all that by seeking cert in the 6th Circuit case. Did you ever think to yourself, gosh, maybe we don't want the Supreme Court to grant cert here. Better to lose Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee instead of risking our wins everywhere else? Well, I, I, uh, to, be, to be very honest, the decision to seek cert had been made before they engaged. Um, so that decision had been made. There were four different teams of counsel for each of the four states. Um, and I don't even know how that discussion went, but I imagine as soon as any one of those teams decided they were going to the Supreme Court, there really wasn't much question about whether the other teams were also going to go. Um, but if you recall, at the beginning of last term, when the states who had lost, their, their state statutes had been struck down as unconstitutional by the several courts of appeals you mentioned, uh, those states sought cert in the Supreme Court. And the plaintiffs there, even though they had won, I know that at least some of them, maybe all of them, actually acquiesced or agreed as respondents that the Supreme Court should take the case, precisely because those who were involved in this movement were not looking for a patchwork uh, across the country of marriage equality. They wanted marriage equality to be uniform across the United States. And in fact, for our clients who were married elsewhere, married in New York or married in California, and then had moved by, you know, by uh, fact of their employment to Tennessee, that was the whole point. You know, marriage equality should be uniform. You should be able to be married, not just in one state, but in all states as you move around the country. 
So they had, they had just decided that, that we were you know, going to push for, for the, the whole thing. So January 16th, the Supreme Court grants cert. Grant cert on two questions, right? right? Um, can you briefly explain uh, the difference between those two questions and why your brief focused on the second? Right. So we had, um, so the court granted two questions. There, each petition, each of the states filed their own petition. They set up the questions differently. We actually had an additional question in our petition having to do with the precedential effect of a one-line summary affirmance by the Supreme Court in another case about marriage equality in the early 70s, and whether, as the Sixth Circuit had held, that has some kind of still precedential value, or whether all that had happened in the intervening decades uh, had undermined that sufficiently that the Court of Appeals could disregard it, offering the Supreme Court another sort of way out if they had wanted that. They didn't want that. They instead looked at the four cases, looked at all the different variations and the questions and said, look, there are two basic issues here. One is, does a state that does not wish to issue licenses to same-sex couples have to do so in light of the commands of the 14th Amendment? And then secondly, which almost assumes a negative answer to the first of those questions, um, would nonetheless a state that does not license marriage by same-sex couples have to recognize and honor the marriage of a same-sex couple that was married lawfully under the laws of another state prior to coming to, say, Tennessee. So we're now at the merits briefing stage, and uh, you make a bunch of arguments in your brief that the Supreme Court didn't end up adopting, as well as arguments that, of course, the court did adopt. One of your arguments that the court didn't adopt was that laws against recognizing same-sex marriages discriminate on the basis of sex. Not that they discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, but that they discriminate on the basis of sex. So a lot of law professors love this argument. A lot of lay people were confused by it. Can you explain the argument here? It's interesting. It's, I think it's a very easy argument, and in fact, it made a lot of uh, headlines that the Chief Justice himself asked this question. He put it this simply. Sue loves Bill, and Tom loves Bill. Sue can marry Bill, Tom cannot, and it's only because of the respective genders of Sue and Tom. Why isn't that gender discrimination? And I am still waiting for the answer to that question. <laughs> It seems almost to, to be obvious to me. Uh, the, and in fact, um, going back in history, we all know of the, the famous anti-miscegenation case, Loving versus Virginia, that struck down Virginia's law banning interracial marriage. But prior to that, some 20 years prior to that, in the 1940s, the court had held in Florida versus McLaughlin that a state could not make it a crime to cohabitate, to spend the night together, a, a man and woman, on the basis of the race of the person with whom you were spending the night, because that was race discrimination. Whether or not a crime was committed turned only upon the race of the second person involved. And we said that the logic of that meant that this was also gender discrimination. You can also 
uh, I think, make a, a more subtle argument about why this is gender discrimination, because, in fact, so much of the basis of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is really about enforcing gender normative stereotypes. This person is not acting as we expect a man to act. This person is not acting the way we expect a woman to act, including who we expect a woman to love or who we expect a man to love. Um, and I, I, I think there's a lot to that, too. The EEOC has adopt, started to adopt that view in, in enforcing some of the laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, so, you know, we thought those were very compelling arguments and um, in a way might have required the court to do less that was innovative here, right? Because we already have rules about, you know, how or a framework for how we analyze laws that discriminate on the basis of gender. They're subject to heightened scrutiny, not the strictest form of scrutiny, but certainly heightened intermediate scrutiny. And the states, in our case, were not even arguing that they had a sufficiently compelling interest to meet that higher level of scrutiny. They were really only arguing that their laws satisfied rational basis scrutiny and that there was no level, uh, additional level of scrutiny that was required. So the Supreme Court ultimately mentioned the level of scrutiny issue only in passing, uh, though you're refocused on it at length. Um, for those who haven't taken constitutional law, and also perhaps for those who have, can you explain <laughs> why the level of scrutiny might matter even today after the Supreme Court has resolved the same-sex marriage question? Well, um, a couple of things. One, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that it does still matter. Uh, I think that, the, I, as I've said, for... For a group that has historically been discriminated against precisely because of who they would be intimate with, the nature of their most intimate associations, for the court to have held that those relationships are entitled to the same constitutional dignity as opposite-sex marriages, which have been held up on this sort of pedestal as the, 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 the you know, most highly respected of relationships. I mean, if, if you can't deny same-sex couples that, I don't know what the state could justify in terms of discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. So I think we, we've already won a lot of this. Um, uh, but we, we do know that there are a lot of different ways in which governments can discriminate, including on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and there are not a lot of laws still that protect against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And so uh, whether or not this is a form of gender discrimination may mean whether those, those statutes that are already on the books already protect people from that kind of discrimination. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, where, where you see discrimination sort of, you know, thankfully, we're beyond where we were in terms of the military or the like. But, you know, sometimes the standard of scrutiny does matter. Um, for, for those of you not taking con law yet, the, the court has, I mean, the court hasn't recognized a new classification as suspect in many, many years, and some question whether we'll ever recognize another. Uh, historically, it had laid, the court had laid out a four-factor test um, and in the decision, although the court does not 
analyze it this way, you can make an argument that it goes through and ticks off all of the four factors, one of which is the group historically discriminated against. That's all over the decisions. Second is the group nonetheless fully capable of, of full and equal participation in society. That's all over the opinion. Third is the basis of the distinction of an, an immutable characteristic. The, the opinion says so in, in several places. And then fourth is a, one of political powerlessness. And the court addresses that in effect to say that that's not essential. So I do think that the, the, the pieces are there for lower courts or maybe even another Supreme Court eventually to find that this is a suspect classification. I always want to emphasize, to the extent that you talk about this, it is suspect classification, not suspect class. It's not the class of people who are suspect, it's the classification <laughs> that is suspect. So we'll delve more deeply into the Supreme Court's opinion in a moment, but I don't want to skip over oral argument. Uh, so oral argument scheduled for April 28th. And a month beforehand, uh, it still wasn't clear who would actually argue for the petitioners. Um, so how did it end up with Mary Bonato arguing the first question and you arguing the second question? Well, um, initially, uh, the, the four different teams, uh, there were two questions. And the four cases kind of fell down two and two. There were two of the four cases that only presented the non-recognition issue, that all of our plaintiffs were married outside of the states that they were suing, Tennessee and Ohio. Michigan was only a licensure case. And then Kentucky presented both, but had focused its efforts on licensing. And so we initially proposed that there would be an oral advocate from each of the four cases, two on question one, two on question two. The court politely declined uh, that request, told us to, to pick one for each. Um, and, and at that point, I mean, fortunately, it was, I think, just luck. But uh, you know, in these four cases, all of the national organizations that had been working on questions of LGBT equality for so long the National Center for Lesbian Rights, who was involved in Tennessee with me, Lambda Legal was involved in Ohio, uh, GLAD, Mary Minato was working with the, the plaintiffs in Michigan, and the ACLU was working with Kentucky and also a little bit with Ohio. So you had all of these national organizations, all these people that were there. I suppose it could have gotten very ugly, but in fact it was very, very collaborative. And I think in the end, um, people thought that there was a benefit to having Mary Bonata, who is just legendary uh, in this area, argue the Vermont case that led to first civil unions, the Massachusetts case, the first challenge to DOMA and the Court of Appeals, um, but had never argued a case in the Supreme Court. Uh, and then myself, who uh, you know, I had at that time 15 arguments in the Supreme Court already. Um, you know, and I'll add, I. You know, I would have understood um, if those uh, for whom this is a, a personal issue might have thought that they wanted two counsel advocates who were themselves members of the LGBT community to argue. Um, I think that it, it, it speaks volumes about where that movement is today that they did not feel that that was essential. So once you know that you'll be arguing the second question, uh, the question about recognizing out-of-state marriages, uh, how do you prepare? 
Well, um, we worked hard. <laughs> and if I recall correctly, uh, this was not the only Supreme Court argument you had in the month of April. That's true. Um, <laughs> April 1st, I argued a, uh, a scintillating bankruptcy uh, procedural question. Congratulations on the victory. Yeah, unanimous victory. Uh, and then... Um, I thankfully had 27 days to prepare uh, for this. And in the meantime, we were, we were writing our reply briefs. Um, you know, we, whenever you're preparing for a Supreme Court argument, you do moot courts, you get other people who are knowledgeable about the Supreme Court, about the issue, to fire questions at you. You may only be up for 10 minutes if you're an amicus or 30 minutes, but you'll be up before the moot panelists for an hour or more, and then you rehash, you know, what answers you should have given. Um, normally, you would maybe do two. We did four. Um, uh, we did two of those with uh, Mary Bonato. So we were arguing both of the questions. Uh, and then we had many, many informal sessions uh, with Mary and her team or, or, or with our uh, recognition team. Um, we, and, and I do, thankfully, there were no questions that I had not had earlier in one of the moots, and so I was prepared for all those. I mean, one of the things you, you do, and it's unlike preparing for any other court, is you end up every possible question, and we had people doing 50 state surveys on cousin marriage and the age of marriage, and those questions came up during argument, right? And you have to be prepared for everything. Um, but one of the real uh, focuses of the preparation was making sure that the second issue did not become kind of an off-ramp, so to speak. Now you can imagine when the, the team at NCLR and our Tennessee Council were putting together the Tennessee team and finding these incredible plaintiff couples with these very stirring stories, um, they were thinking about non-recognition as being sort of another incremental step that the court could have taken if they wanted. They had just held in the Windsor case that struck down the Federal Defense of Marriage Act that the federal government could not deny recognition to marriages that were valid under state law. And many people thought, well, maybe the next step will be to hold that a state can't deny recognition to such a marriage that's valid under another state's law before getting to the point of holding that states had to license these marriages themselves. But once the court had granted both of these questions at the same time, then all of a sudden people were like, oh, wait a minute. Now maybe the second question is the Trojan horse. Maybe that's the one that the, you know, some nefarious justice, not that there are nefarious justices, uh, but you know, would, would try to steer the court kind of to this l lesser win for, for us, and how do we prevent that from happening? And so we were working, Mary and I, very, very closely together to make sure that we were on the same page on all these things, and that we were using the second question to the extent possible to reinforce the arguments we were making on question one. And I think that, that we were successful in that. I think that the fact that our plaintiffs in question two were already married and the real focus of our arguments were that their marriages were and are as fundamental to them and their lives and how they build their lives as any opposite-sex couple's marriage is to them. 
And the idea that their marriage would be dissolved by a state with no good reason for doing so is so offensive to a person, myself included, for whom their marriage is truly fundamental to their self-identity. We wanted to convey that same point to the justices and perhaps in particular to a particular justice. So let's talk about that particular justice. (laughs) Most observers think that in order for your side to win, you're going to need Justice Kennedy's vote. And before the arguments on question two, so still the arguments on question one, Mary Bonanno stands up and almost right off the bat, Justice Kennedy says he's worried about changing a definition of marriage that's been around for millennia. What's going through your mind at that point? <laughs> I've never liked that word, millennia. <laughs> um, it's fair enough that a lot of attention has been and, and was at the moment being paid to, to that. But in another sense, there was nothing new about that, right? That's where Justice Kennedy wrote in Windsor, likewise, that until recently, no one would have thought that marriage might be anything but a union of a man and a woman. And so the question had only come to us relatively recently. Um, so I think he was, he was, in a sense, just sort of restating what he had already said. Um, and, uh, and I think you know, we had an, uh, a, a very good answer to that, which is that marriage as an institution has not been static for millennia. Um, you know, when the Equal Protection Clause was adopted, many states still uh, adhered to the uh, law of coverture, that women ceased to be legally independent Entities when they married and became one with their husband, and the husband became the legal representative and public face of the marriage. Um, and nonetheless, in the 70s and 80s, the Supreme Court, as a matter of constitutional law, held that states, despite their historic control over the institution of marriage, could not define marriage in a way that that made the legal rights and responsibilities of the spouses unequal on the basis of gender. And at the end of that series of cases, which ends in a case that strikes down Louisiana's equivalent of coverture, um, marriage is now truly an institution of equals as a legal matter, and gender is irrelevant to the relative rights and responsibilities of of the spouses, except at the point of entry. Right? That's the only place at which gender figures in. And so the, it actually now makes sense that we would ask the question about same-sex marriage. Before that, I mean, boy, you know, it makes the head explode. What do you mean, you know, two men? Who's going to be the subservient one? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so it, now it makes sense because as a legal matter, marriage is an institution of equals. So Justice Kennedy asks his millennium question, Mary Bonanno gives her answer, and then a little more than an hour later, you stand up to argue on on question two. I guess I should ask, how nervous are you at this point? Are you more nervous than your first Supreme Court argument? 
Uh, nervous in a different way. I, I love to tell the story. My first Supreme Court argument, they, they're very kind. They put a glass of water there in case your throat gets parched. And mine usually does because I am nervous. Um, I reached down to get it during my first argument, and my hand was going like this. And I, okay, I am going to spill that water over everything. I just sort of put my hand back on the podium, held on for dear life. And so, um, I, I am to the point now that I can take a sip of water. <laughs> sat there um, listening to Mary's. I, I will say that I, there came a moment when I felt how physically tense my body was. I really felt it physically. And I was like, oh, goodness, this is not good. Um, and, I, and I thought for a moment, I was like, you know, there's, there's so many people that are counting on this and, and uh, you know, the, the pressure. And I really did mentally say, okay, no. I, it's not the burden of these hundreds of thousands of people. It's their hopes. Their hopes are lifting me up. And I, I sort of thought about that. I, I relaxed. And uh, I will say that at, at the end of that argument, I have never been so physically and emotionally drained than at the end of that argument. I mean, it's sort of like the marathon runner who collapses at the end. I mean, I, I, that's how I felt at the end of that argument. So I want to talk about the end of the argument uh, for a moment, the rebuttal period. Um, so you've reserved five minutes for rebuttal, and then something remarkable happens. You stand up, and the justices just let you talk. No one interrupted. Because had that ever happened to you before? No. And how did you... <laughs> um, I, interesting, I think uh, part of it may be that it was... Uh, it was two and a half hours of argument instead of two hours of argument. They may have been getting a little bit tired. Of course, they had heard two hours of argument on basically the same thing. Um, or, or maybe it was just to give me an opportunity to make my, my last argument. I, um, but I, I was grateful for it. Um, we had, it had been very important to me, and I, just for happenstance, I'd gone to to Kentucky and to Tennessee for moot courts, and we were going to meet the plaintiffs, and then for one reason or another, they couldn't come. And so I had not met our plaintiffs. But I, I, to me, it was very important that I meet them personally before the argument. So the day before argument, uh, they had come into town, and they all came over to, they were going to party. I declined politely. <laughs> Um, but I had them come over and, uh, and met them, and it was, it was very stirring, and they're really just wonderful people. So I could, and I could mentally picture them when I was talking about them and, and their stories. Um, and I had worked, you know, at the Supreme Court, you do not just pull tug heartstrings. That, that, is, that is a recipe for disaster. That will backfire. But I, what I did was I tried to link their stories to particular legal arguments that we had. Um, and as I was listening to the state's argument, it, it occurred to me that they were making all of the legal arguments that I wanted to respond to with you know, one or another of these stories. And as it happened, it just lined up that way, that I could use each of them in a very powerful way, I thought, to make these points. And, um, and, and uh, at the end, um, I, I simply ended with this plea, that, that 
the state's argument was in effect that these marriages, and then we go back to the fact that our plaintiffs were already married. Their marriages were not marriages in the constitutional sense. The states were not disputing that the Supreme Court had recognized marriage as a fundamental right and institution different from others that was entitled to constitutional protection. Their argument was that these marriages were not marriages in the constitutional sense deserving of that protection. And I asked the court not to enshrine in the Constitution the second class status of these marriages. Um, And I will say that our plaintiffs were very, very appreciative that their stories were told and heard and, you know, they felt we, we we had given it the best shot that we could. So we'll fast forward to June 26th. The opinions are handed down. I guess, where were you at the time? Sitting in the front row. Um, <laughs> so finally, you, you, you get to read Justice Kennedy's opinion. Um, and some of the commentary on that opinion has been quite harsh, uh, even from folks who agree with his ultimate bottom line. So Professor Andrew Koppelman at Northwestern wrote, all of Kennedy's worst traits, the ponderous self-importance, the leaps of logic, the worship of state power were on display. For a decision this important, the court should have been able to do better. Do you agree? Could the court have done better? So shortly after the decision uh, came down, I was in Philadelphia on a panel, um, and I was, I was the first speaker. And um, so my, my son is in high school doing debate. Some of you may have done high school debate. And so I said, now I'm going to start this like a high school debate. The resolution resolved. Justice Kennedy's opinion is perfect. <laughs> now, for those of you who've done high school debate, you know that the trick is to be the first speaker because if you're the first speaker, you get to define terms. And if you define terms well, you win. Right? And so then I define my terms. By perfect, I don't mean that the constitutional law scholars couldn't write a tighter doctrinal opinion, although I cautioned that most of them would take at least three times as many pages to do so than Justice Kennedy had, or that the English majors might not have improved on the flowery prose, or, or that the pugilists might not have dealt a better knockout blow to the dissenters. I think that it's a, the perfect opinion for this movement at this time. For the reason I said before, if the, if, if the court has now recognized that these relationships have the same constitutional dignity as the most fundamental relationships of opposite sex couples, I just, it, it, that's, to me, that's game over uh, on this issue. Um, and so to me, it was actually very important that it was a fundamental rights case about marriage. Um, and at, with all of those pieces of the equal protection analysis that are sort of there in it, if, even if that's not the framework for the opinion. Um, you know, we, uh, it's not just Justice Kennedy that's come in for criticism. I know that there were at least a couple of articles that came out after the oral argument about how the advocates had, had not argued about levels of, of review and is this fundamental rights or is this equal protection? It's like, to Justice Kennedy, that's not how he thinks about these things. And so, no, I wasn't going to waste my time talking about these, these doctrines and frameworks that weren't how he was going to analyze it. We 
saw from his earlier opinions that it was about the dignity of these relationships. And, and that's what we spoke to. So I, wa- I want to ask you a little bit more about the fundamental rights component of the decision. So the dissents have gotten a lot of attention, probably uh, Justice Scalia's in particular, for um, comparing Justice Kennedy's opinion to the mystical aphorisms of the fortune cookie. Um, but Justice Thomas uh, makes one of the most interesting arguments in his dissent. So he draws a distinction between positive entitlements and negative liberties. And he says the due process clause only protects negative liberties. And since the argument for a right to marriage is a claim to a positive entitlement, a claim that the state should do something, should recognize a marriage, rather than that the state should refrain from doing something, just as Thomas says, the due process clause just doesn't protect the right to marriage. Um, The majority doesn't really respond to that argument. What do you make of the argument? Well, the majority may not respond to it in uh, explicit ways, but but it What what Justice Thomas does not acknowledge is how totally revolutionary that proposition is as a matter of of constitutional law. This, I think, goes underappreciated. The Supreme Court has, in case after case after case, acknowledged that marriage is a fundamental right that restricts the power of the state. The state could not, for example, in Turner, prohibit a prisoner from being married, even though prisoners have forfeited a large portion of their rights, even though a prisoner certainly could not physically consummate the marriage, nonetheless, the state could not restrict the right of that person to marry, not just as a matter of equal protection, but also of substantive due process. The Griswold goes back to the, the right of privacy around the marriage. Our point was that, and this is in in a sense an equal protection point, but but it's also fundamental rights. And uh, to quote, I, I believe from Justice Jackson, that the greatest protection of the minority is that the majority must be willing to live under the same laws to which they would subject the minority. Well, we know what the majority thinks about marriage. Those of us who are married, uh, opposite sex couples, it would, no one of us would ever contemplate that the state would have the power when the wife ceases to be of childbearing years, that the marriage could be dissolved by the state. Yet that is the power that the states were asserting. They didn't ever acknowledge that, but that was the power they were asserting. And when you take and universalize that principle to the majority, you understand how terribly radical it is. And that's what Justice Thomas is arguing for. the, The Constitution has been held to recognize these positive rights already. It's just that so far they were only acknowledged for the majority. What I think the most important principle for which Justice Kennedy's opinion will be will stand in the future is that he rejects that mode of analysis of fundamental rights that Justice Scalia and Thomas 
have advocated, where you define the fundamental right at the lowest level of specificity for which you can identify a tradition. And Justice Kennedy rightly says that if that were the test, then only those who have historically been powerful will be protected, and that those who have been marginalized in society will never enjoy the same constitutional benefits. And I am so glad that he is finally, we have a decision we can point to that decisively rejects that mode of constitutional analysis. Um, so what's next for you? Will you be continue? Uh, will you on the, continue on the to talk be, circuit? Will you, yeah. <laughs> will you continue to be involved in litigation involving LGBT rights? Uh, I, I anticipate we will. I mean, you, you were right to say at the very outset that my name did not appear in uh, the list of lawyers, the long list of lawyers in, in the Sixth Circuit. Ropes and Graves did. We had been filing uh, briefs at the appellate level in all of these cases on behalf of a group of uh, progressive religiously affiliated organizations led by the Anti-Defamation League, speaking to kind of counterbalance the, the religious views on the other side of these issues. I had filed a brief in the Supreme Court in Windsor for that same coalition. We've been contacted to do an amicus brief and a new case that's coming up from Alabama about full faith and credit, which was, of course, an issue in ours. Um, and, and so I, I, I hope that we will. We've, we have worked with you know, Lambda Legal, for example, on a number of cases. We filed uh, amicus in both of the challenges to the Affordable Care Act, explaining its importance to the LGBT community, especially around AIDS uh, and the like. Uh, Jeff Boschowski had a case in Louisiana where we, we, we worked again with Lambda Legal on similar issues. We've, we've done other uh, briefs uh, on behalf of transgender prisoners uh, and the like. Um, so I think we will continue to, to be involved in these issues. Um, I, I have not been involved you know, in, in some of the implementation, like the Kim Davis case, et cetera, the ACLU was handling Kentucky, and they've, they've continued to handle that. Um, regardless of your involvement in future litigation, uh, you will certainly be portrayed in a future movie uh, made about <laughs> um, Who do you want to have <laughs> I, I think the appropriate answer to these, these questions is Denzel Washington. <laughs> I assume that uh, my role will be a bit part and that it will be from behind, so any tall uh, gentleman will probably be. Uh, so I want to open up uh, uh, to student questions in a moment, but uh, for students in the audience who want to argue a Supreme Court case one day, uh, what advice would you give? How does one get from sitting in a law school lecture hall to standing at the podium in front of the nine justices? My advice would be to be lucky. Uh, the, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was always one of my dreams. One of the things that drew me to law from the beginning were, were civil rights cases and, and having witnessed growing up in St. Louis the, the real transformative effect that it can have to have you know, segregated schools, uh, desegregated and the like, and, I, and, and it, so it was always, this really is the realization of a dream in that sense. Um, I knew that I wanted to be involved in appellate litigation. I was always attracted to the sort of more academic side of the law, but I wanted to, to be a, a, a practicing lawyer. 
I say it's because of my, you know, whether it's attention deficit disorder or whatever. I can't write a law review article. I just, the idea of a 150-page article just can't do it. Whereas a 50-page brief, excellent. You know, that's about it. That's my attention span, 50 pages. Um, so I knew I wanted to do that. I went to a firm that did not have an appellate practice. I sort of took what opportunities I could. Uh, and then I went to the civil division's appellate staff uh, at DOJ. And that was a tremendous opportunity to really do the work of appellate advocacy in a context where you know, I had a lot of real decision-making authority about how to structure my briefs, but also the guidance of people who've been doing this for their careers. Um, from there, I was, was fortunate enough to get a position at the Solicitor General's office. I think probably because I did not have a Supreme Court clerkship myself, um, I, probably the only reason that I got a job at the Solicitor General's office because I had been working at DOJ and working closely with the people in the SG's office. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so I had obviously built the kind of uh, credentials that would, would put me in the, the running for something like this. But the other is, you know, to be open to opportunities, right? I mean, there was, there was no hesitation when my friend wrote, fortunately, I work at a firm for which there was not a second's thought of doubt, you know, would they have been behind this case? I mean, absolutely no question. Um, both in terms of the commitment of the resources that it was going to take, and it was thousands of hours of, of, of attorney resources, but also, you know, the, the positions that we would be taking. Um, you know, and so to be part of a firm that has as much a commitment to pro bono and to these issues of justice, I think, was also very important to that. So you're used to having nine people shout out questions at you. Uh, I figure we should probably, with a little bit more than uh, nine people here, use a hand-raising method. Um, does anyone have a question yeah, in the back? Um, I, I worked for Lambda last summer uh, with John Davidson, which is Oh, great. Yeah, um, and I know that there kind of the theme of your book around Lambda is that now that marriage equality is here, they're not going to get as much funding for future LGBT issues, especially like trans, because a lot of the trans people are you know, poor and people of color, and um, you know, it, it's we're not getting the same reaction to like Kim Davis, at least in the legal world, as we were to like just same-sex marriage in general. So, how do you think that um, law firms and like lay people can continue supporting LGBT issues now that it seems like the work is done? Well, uh, I, I hope that that's not the perception because there certainly is so much work that continues to be done. And I've mentioned a few of the issues that we've been involved with. For example, uh, transgender uh, prisoners. I mean, this has been a serious, serious problem. Um, and the vote in, in Houston yesterday, I think, illustrates that, that the work is not over. Uh, it, uh, it was in New Orleans a month ago, and the person who started off the evening said, "New Orleans, you know, now thanks to Obergefell, you know, Louisiana is a state where, where same-sex couples can get married, and yet they can get married on Saturday and fired on Monday for having got married because there is no protection against private so-called discrimination. So we're going to continue to have to work." 
in that area. Um, so I, uh, you know, as important as I think this issue was, it's critical to remember that it only applies to governments and that, that there's a lot of discrimination out there that still has to be addressed. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that Supreme Court justices essentially have their minds made up before oral arguments happen. I'm wondering if you think that's true, and if it is, then what purpose do oral arguments play in bringing the issues forward? I think that it's fair to say that the briefs are the most important uh, opportunity for advocacy in the Supreme Court. Uh, first of all, you've got all those pages. You can build your arguments in a very logical, tight way. You have cite all the authority that supports it. And the justices and their clerks will have spent considerable time with those briefs as well as all the amicus briefs before argument. And they will come to the bench with a, a, a fairly certain view of where the legal merits lie, right? I don't think that it's true that oral argument is a, a waste of time. Um, uh, I, I think that it is the opportunity to respond to the lingering questions. Uh, a lot of times what I find is that a, a, a sympathetic justice might have a better sense than I have about where the remaining questions are of a swing justice that they might need to form a majority. And so they'll be asking a question that may, may seem hostile, but really it's an opportunity to address that area and provide some comfort around an issue. Um, I would say, you know, I, and I have no inside knowledge about this at all, but I, I would guess that Justice Kennedy came to that opinion without having made up his own mind. Now, that's not to say that it was, you know, 50-50 which way it was going to go. I think everything else he had written suggested he was probably going to end up on our side. But you can go back and read Windsor, and there's a lot of federalism in there. He could have gone the other way. And I, and I imagine he came to argument still not in his own mind decided. Very much for being here. Um, my question is: If you had to lose the case, is there a way in which you would prefer to? Is that a, a no on question one and a yes on question two? Is there some avenue where, if the court wasn't going to take the big step this time, would have set up the next step to get where we are today? Um, well, certainly as a practical matter, a no on question one and a yes on question two probably would have led. Um, in, in relatively short order to a, a situation where people who wanted to be married were able to be married except for those who had physical restrictions and weren't able to travel. Because one of the questions was um, not presented by the Tennessee plaintiffs but was presented by the Ohio plaintiffs. What if you leave the state to get married in a state that will allow you to and then come back, but you've always been a resident of the state. And, but if they had acknowledged that that was permissible, then as a practical matter, couples that wanted to be married could have been married, and, and you would be able to travel, drive across country without concern that if you ended up in an accident in a, in a no state, that you wouldn't have a claim for loss of, of your, your spouse. Um, 
you know, but I don't think there was any way that we could lose on question one that would have fully vindicated the rights of our plaintiffs. And I tried to make, the justices were quite frustrated with me that I, I kept fighting the premise that we would lose on question one, because I didn't want to lose on question one. <laughs> and, um, I mean, we did have arguments that were distinct. There were distinct harms. It is a distinct harm to a couple that is already married to see their marriage dissolved, I think. Um, so there were distinct harms, and there was even less of a state interest in, in treating that marriage, was, which was nonetheless still valid in the state where it was celebrated and in any other state that would honor it. Treating it as though it didn't exist would only encourage those people. I mean, you have to like get into their minds. What they really want these people now to like act as though they're not married, so that maybe then they marry other people of other sex. So then they really are married to two different people at the same time. You know, I don't think that polygamy is really where the states wanted this to end, <laughs> but that was sort of the logic of it. Um, I, you know, we. I didn't think there was a way to lose on question one, though. That and we end on question two, that would, would truly honor um, their marriages. As I said, it would have set them up as, um, as second-class marriages at some level, you know, entitled to this level of constitutional protection, but not full constitutional protection. So speaking of question one, I think we have time for one more question. Yeah. So leading up to... Uh, Obergefell on the arguments of the Supreme Court. There were some people who made the case that it would be better if the states came along and uh, decided the issues for themselves, so sort of the Federalist argument. Um, and that the advantage of that is that then it's not the government imposing it on people and then maybe that would help it become more accepted across the country. Is that an argument that you found at all convincing or what were the aspects of arguing in front of the court that you found were more advantageous? Well, I, I, I don't find that argument persuasive uh, in the same way that it was not persuasive when it was the rights of racial minorities or of women that were at stake. The Supreme Court, you think back to those cases I talked about earlier in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, there was a time when the Equal Rights Amendment was actively before the states considering whether our Constitution would be amended to add explicit protection of, on the, against discrimination on the basis of sex. And in a sense, the court went and you know, decided that that was already in the Equal Protection Clause. So there was an instance where the rights of individuals were at stake and the court acted despite the ongoing democratic process. And you think about the, the interracial marriage uh, laws, Tennessee, our state, did not repeal its law banning interracial marriage until the late 1970s, and, and Alabama not until 2002. Well, I'm sure glad that interracial couples in Alabama didn't have to wait until the good people of Alabama got around to accepting this, this principle of equality. And, and so I actually find to some extent that argument offensive because it suggests that LGBT people should be willing to wait when no other group was told that they had to wait to win their rights at the ballot box. Well, thank you very much for coming here.
This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.